We are very proud to be here this evening to launch a very important book by a long-time supporter of CIS. Uh, Jeffrey and I came to know each other about two decades ago when we were contributing articles to Quadrant magazine. Uh, he was poetry, mine were just general articles. And this morning we did an event on uh, women in politics here. And I, I, I promoted this evening's event by saying that Jeffrey is a distinguished tax economist and a prominent poet. <laughs> and that's a heck of a combination. Uh, and we're very proud to be associated with uh, Jeffrey. And especially so given that the fellow we've, we've, we've asked to launch uh, the book is one of this nation's most distinguished jurists um, and public intellectuals, and I am, of course, referring to the former High Court Justice, Michael Kirby. Now, Michael Kirby, of course, was on the High Court uh, from uh, 1996, early 1996, until early 2009. And as it happens, uh, this week is the 10 years exactly since uh, Michael Kirby stood down from the High Court. And when he did so, the Australian newspaper wrote, and I quote, Kirby's immediate legacy will be as a law reformer and public intellectual. That is not to forget an easy writing style which convinced others that judgments didn't have to be a torture test. Add to that his unfailing courtesy and generosity of support on and off the bench. But one criticism of Kirby, this is the Australian, is that he has been a result-oriented judge who searches for what he believes is a just conclusion. Now, if that's a criticism, <laughs> we at CIS are proud to welcome that criticism. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michael Kirby. I've forgotten that little essay in the Australian newspaper. And I'm so grateful to be reminded of <laughs> what they said uh, so many years ago. Um, and I'm grateful to be invited here tonight to launch uh, this excellent book. And isn't it fantastic that there's such a big audience that has come to see the launch of a book which is an autobiography of a most distinguished Australian poet. Uh, I congratulate only... Uh, Jeffrey and one or two others could gather uh, a large congregation like this tonight to uh, be present for this launch. Of course, we were all geared up for an earlier occasion uh, and uh, we were all due to come down uh, here to launch the book, but um, the evening turned out to be an evening when the heavens menaced so and the result was that it was cancelled. And today uh, is another day where the weather has been dreadful. Uh, and indeed, in the old scale, this was over 100 today. So this would have been a heatwave day. And you can sort of count on the fingers of one hand as you're growing up the days that were the heatwave days. And this was one of them. So, Geoffrey, you seem to have a lot of attention up there in the stratosphere and uh, I don't think the heavens menace uh, this uh, launch, 
but uh, the heavens tremble uh, in the presence of uh, a mixture between a poet and a tax lawyer. <laughs> but I hope to show that uh, the mixture is not so unusual and indeed has proved uh, a great benefit uh, to uh, Australian uh, poetry. I met Geoffrey when he was a mere lad uh, and he was a great friend uh, of my brother Donald and it's a friendship which has uh, gone through their lives and it's referred to in this book. Uh, at the time um, I didn't have so much to do with Geoffrey because uh, I was involved uh, in student politics and spent most of my time, instead of having a, a really good time, which is what I should have done, uh, but uh, I spent most of my time chairing committees of student troublemakers uh, and pretending ever so hard to be straight. Uh, <laughs> and I noticed that one of Geoffrey's special friends from those times as uh, referred to and whose life uh, intertwined with Geoffrey was Stephen Wilson, who was a very fine man and uh, a, very, um, a very good lawyer, but uh, like me, trying desperately to be straight uh, when that uh, must have been obviously wrong to people who were following his life uh, closely. Um, Geoffrey was um, uh, uh, such a friend of my brother Donald that he composed a marvellous poem, which is, I don't know whether it's in the anthologies, maybe it is, but it's for after the examinations, Chinese style. So we had passed. The evening sky was hot and starlit, and static lightning flickered on and off, silent and meaningless. We must get drunk, I cried in the brothel quarter. Yes, I suppose we must, my friend replied. But listen to the cricket's endless sing-song. Now we have passed, we have before us everything and nothing. Wives, children, service to the emperor, Another fifty years to choose exactly which sword to fall upon? Look at our footprints in the dust. They only lead us. We wear our feet out just to reach ourselves. But look, old boy, I said. The moon is wine and night is jasmine-scented. I can see lights from under doorways. I can hear flutes and women in silk dresses. Wonderful imagery there, just magic. Uh, rather Yeats-like, I think. Don't you think? It's like um, sailing to Byzantium. Beautiful images, so rich and powerful. And it's magic uh, and... That's what Geoffrey has been bringing to us. And so it's fitting that we should have his story and that we should have it from 
his own pen. Uh, he became a tax lawyer because he was befriended by Ross Parsons, who was the professor at the University of Sydney who taught company law. He taught me company law two years ahead of Geoffrey and my brother Donald. Uh, and um, he was uh, determined that tax law should not just be the province of accountants. And that was an unusual theory at the time, deeply resented by the accountants. But um, because Geoffrey lived over the harbour on the north side, he gave Ross a lift home once. And that led to a friendship, and that friendship led in that serendipitous way of life to Geoffrey becoming ultimately one of Australia's most distinguished tax lawyers and tax academics and the writer of standard texts on the subject. It's actually a very interesting question, isn't it, that composers and poets and artistic um, geniuses are uh, human beings too and they have real lives and they have to make enough money to put marmalade on the table, as they say in some of the cases. Uh, and uh, it's the story of Geoffrey's life that is uh, captured in this book, which uh, is now being launched. I went through a period of a crazy love for Gustav Mahler, I shared this with Prime Minister Keating. I was probably copying Prime Minister <laughs> Keating, though I sort of drew a line over the French clocks and the Italian suits. But I, uh, I really loved Mahler. My partner Jan, who's a very practical person from the Netherlands, couldn't stand him and thought he goes on and on, it's tedious and it's very long and he never knows when to stop. But I once went to Vienna, where Mahler was the conductor, Kaiserlicher und Königlicher, uh, and I went secretly to the state opera, which had been the Royal and Imperial Opera House there, and I put my hand on the entrance door, which was for the conductor. I just wanted to communicate <laughs> with Gustav, that his great hand had touched that, that opening door. And this is what this book is about. Behind Geoffrey's life was a complex life uh, with his family and with his loves, uh, but he's laying it all out before us so that we can kind of understand where he's coming from in the inspired poetry that he's composed at different intervals during his life. And I've no doubt that having read this book, there will be uh, Australians who will <coughs> look out for the houses in McMahon's Point that Geoffrey came from, and they'll be seen climbing up the staircase <laughs> to touch the opening of the door 
um, because people are funny that way. They, they want to communicate with the master spirit uh, and that happens to be what Geoffrey is. I mean, we all know the strange story of Wallace Stevens. I mean, his father was a very distinguished lawyer uh, and um, he became an insurance corporation giant and he rose to be the vice president, not the president of Hartford Insurance Company. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his poetry, but when Harvard offered him a chair and all the honours and so on, he couldn't leave them at all because he was the vice president of the Hartford Insurance Corporation of the United States. Wallace, like Geoffrey, had to put marmalade on the table and so he uh, hung in there in his other life. And this is the interesting feature of this book that it, it sort of takes you through the poetic journey but it also takes you through the life journey uh, and that is, well, let's be frank, a little bit peculiar. Uh, his life was a little bit unusual, to say the least, uh, and um, he hasn't held back in the stories of his life. Now, Sarah Holland Batt, in a very interesting uh, resume of this book, and she should be here tonight doing this, this job because she'd be able to do it with much more finesse about the poetry. She said, you really shouldn't have a chronological uh, history of a, a poet because their lives are too serendipitous. They're getting images and ideas and thoughts from too many different sources and therefore if you try to stamp on them the clock... Um, any more than if Tom tried to stamp on me the clock tonight and, and halt me from going on about this book, um, you're not going to succeed. But um, Jeffrey, Jeffrey starts with uh, essentially a story of his two grandfathers uh, and one of them on his father's side um, suffered problems of an economic kind that arose out of the economic situation of Australia at the time and that his, his business was not good and so he was sent up to, or he went up to Papua New Guinea, uh, what we call now Papua New Guinea, and he caught malaria and he died of it very soon after Geoffrey's uh, father was born. Uh, his mother's... Uh, father uh, also died young. She was, this is Geoffrey's uh, mother's father, uh, she was a bit ashamed of her father because her father was a doctor. She was a person with aspirations, uh, aspirations for dignity and she considered herself to be upper middle class and she, she was a doctor's daughter. But the problem was the doctor was really addicted to alcohol and, as it turned out, to morphine. Uh, and that was a source of shame and it led to his death from morphine overdose, so it was recorded. So 
These were the background facts, but that's just the beginning of it because Geoffrey's father, Leo, was uh, a carpenter by training but an investor by inclination. And he was a man who invested in real estate on the edge of Sydney Harbour. Now, that was a very good career move for Leo. Um, And uh, as a result of that, um, because he accumulated these three uh, excellent properties in McMahon's Point, it led almost inevitably to an audit by the Australian Taxation Office. And this was probably Geoffrey's first encounter with the ATO, an encounter that he was going to, going to live to love uh, and to hate through the rest of his life. They found that his father, Leo, had understated his income. And the net result of that no doubt, it was a great embarrassment and all sorts of problems and so on. But uh, he was a man who dropped his G's. Go on, I'm going somewhere. And all of this is vividly described because children remember these things and no one more than a child like Geoffrey. His mother had delusions of class Um, and she was a very unusual woman, actually. She emerges from the book as a very unusual woman. There was a green book from which she would read to uh, her children, but especially to Geoffrey, and Geoffrey thought, this book must have the most wonderful stories, and later he went to open it when he could read more efficiently, and he found there was absolutely nothing about the stories in there. It was a book that was completely banal, and she wasn't reading the book, she was making it up. She was a woman of imagination, and the stories that uh, got into Geoffrey's mind and all the images from those stories were her mother's imagination. Um, My brothers, Donald and David, who are here tonight, and I, and my sister, my late sister, had great uh, luck with our father. He was a great reader. You know, I think that's a really important thing for children to have parents who will read to them. And uh, we can still tell. We never got any of the magic pudding or anything like that. No way. We got the Grimm's fairy stories, (laughs) which were all so didactic. And if I am a didactic, results-oriented judge, (laughs) it's because I was aware of the fact that there are great moral principles in this world and that you've got to do something about advancing them. Anyway, Leo, the father, dropped his Gs. Iris, the mother, had imagination uh, and... Geoffrey says he fell out of love with his mother after a certain time. That might have followed the fact that she discovered him masturbating in bed under the, under the um, covers. Uh, and 
uh, how many mothers would you want to then say, you are not the boy I thought you were? <laughs> Maybe she was trying to say then, Geoffrey, you are not a boy and I thought you were. Are you sure you heard it right? <laughs> anyway, that's the sort of mother from central casting hell to say that to a little boy uh, and it's a wonder that it didn't turn Geoffrey very strange in the sexual department but he ended up becoming uh, very straight in the sexual department if I can use that word. His mother, there's a wonderful phrase in the book uh, where his mother heard that someone, her name was Iris, someone had seen an iris in an onion field, an, uh, in an onion field. And she said, well, that's my fate. I'm an iris with a lot of onions around me. <laughs> onions who drop their Gs. But she didn't know she had one of those onions was our Geoffrey, a person of inspired sensibility who would go on uh, to write this book and uh, preceded with uh, his wonderful poetry. But that's not the end of it too. Geoffrey had a sister, Diana, which happens to have been the name of our sister. Very nice names in the Lehman, Lehman family. Very nice names they have, old-fashioned names. And Diana, his older sister, had an adrenal gland difficulty and... That led to her having the gland removed and it led to uh, all sorts of problems uh, in her life. Um, and when she got a Commonwealth scholarship, one of Mr Menzies' Commonwealth scholarships that put a lot of people in this room through university, why they had to change all that, I don't know. It was a very good system and a very fair system. And all of us who were Commonwealth scholars have paid high taxes all our lives and not complained about it because that was the deal. But anyway, Geoffrey's sister Diana won a Commonwealth scholarship but she lacked confidence in herself and so she went to Miss Hayes's school to teach her to be a secretary and she became a law secretary and she had a life which in some ways was unhappy but in, ended up uh, after Geoffrey essentially saved her life, which is the story told in the book, it ended up with happiness uh, in the relationship between Geoffrey and she was very proud of Geoffrey's children by his two marriages. So they were the dramatis personae and um, they're probably no more strange and peculiar than the rest of you in this audience and your family. Uh, but there was this clash between the mother and the father and the dreams of the one and the realities of the other. Geoffrey uh, blames the situation with his family for his hopelessly conservative political stance through the rest of his life because... <laughs> The result of the result of um, the tax audit and the need to find a lot of money 
led to a, a number of problems arising by reason of the Landlord and Tenant Act of that time, which gave protected tenancies to people. And I believe somebody's pr suggesting protected tenancies again today. But protected tenancies meant that the free market didn't operate, and that meant the family couldn't get the immediate economic benefit. And Geoffrey said that unhappy incident in his childhood convinced him to let free markets reign. And that's why we're here tonight. <laughs> I've never been invited to this place. You know, I've been, I've been everywhere. I've spoken in every, every venue of this nation I've spoken at. I've spoken for Gerard Henderson. But I've never been in this centre, so I'm glad at long last, as I approach my 80th birthday, I've made it here. Anyway, um, the book is divided into different stories. They're not chapters because it's chronological, but there's the story of his education at Mossman Prep, the story of his education at Shaw, uh, and he's a bit hard on Shaw, but he does reserve special praise for Pat Eldershaw, who was the teacher who came into the class, and this is a wonderful story, and said, how many of you in this class have got doubts about eternal life? <laughs> Just imagine being asked that sort of question at the age of 11. But... Geoffrey was the only one who put his hand up in the class and the teacher didn't tax him on why he came to that. He left that for later uh, exploration and that that's, uh, shows a really great teacher and he's, that identified a really original and unusual person. I wonder how many of you would have put your hand up in year six or seven at school and uh, admitted to not believing the whole shebang of uh, biblical history. But Geoffrey did. Um, he was a quiet and shy boy originally, despite his mother's discovery under the covers. Uh, and uh, he soon cured that by joining the push. Now, the push was a very well, I'd say liberated place. It sounds wonderful. It sounds almost so wonderful that it sounds a little bit like the gay world of 1983 or so. Uh, a, a lot of sex was going on and people were having a wonderful time. Of course, in 1986, HIV came along and that was a dreadful time. But Geoffrey uh, and his friends... Geoffrey uh, turned out to be a bit of a squib in this business because, you know, he, he just had that unusual belief, uh, unusual for the push, that you're better off if you just got one partner. Uh, and uh, so his life has been a search for a soulmate and uh, a loving partner. He said he's written this book trying to be careful not to hurt people unnecessary, to tell the truth but not needlessly to upset people who are still living. And I think he succeeded in, in that. Um, his first wife, Sally McInerney, um, uh, caught his attention because 
she pulled his tie, which is a most unusual thing to do to a young lawyer in a suit. Uh, she pulled his tie and he fell in love with her. He was warned by everybody, she's just too beautiful. Uh, it will not be easy for you or her. Uh, but uh, so it proved. But he greatly loved her and uh, that is the course of love. And out of the, the difficulties came a lot of very wonderful poetry. His second wife, at the conclusion of that relationship, was Gail Pearson, who is a really outstanding academic. She's an academic originally in accounting, now in law. Her areas are consumer protection and financial laws, very complicated technical stuff. Um, and uh, one commentator said to him, you'll probably get on well with her, although she's 29 and you're 40, you'll probably get on well with uh, Gail because you're both so difficult. <laughs> and, and this is admitted in the book. Um, but Geoffrey says in that second relationship, uh, he was truly, has been truly happy. Maybe there was a gap in the poetry. Maybe there would have been more poetry if he'd been unhappy. <laughs> there tends to be, out of unhappiness, there is an urge to express it in, in that has to come out of you. Uh, although Gustav wrote his great songs up in the mountain where things were blissful, so it doesn't always follow. Then there's the tax uh, life. He got this by attacking Sir Garfield Barwick, who, of course, was never a result-oriented <laughs> judge. Never, never, never. Uh, and the attack on Sir Garfield and his uh, demolition of the provisions of the Income Tax Assessment Act uh, that were designed to stop tax avoidance and uh, evasion uh, was it was extremely influential, Jeffrey's attack on that and his analysis of it and his empirical foundation. You spoke, Tom, about founding policy on good empirical research. Well, that's what Jeffrey did uh, in his wearing his other hat uh, back in 1979. And that caught the eye of a young and imaginative future treasurer and later the treasurer, Paul Keating, and that led to a lot of really marvellous, um, well, they're not really eternal poems, but they're poems that uh, are poems from a, a, a dream uh, composition which he wrote uh, about the Second Tax Summit. And uh, <laughs> God bless you. This is, this is uh, what... Uh, somebody wrote about Professor Hewson. God bless you, ex-Professor Hewson. It's easy to see your new son. We don't drink shandies and fancy French brandies. It's clear you don't know the right brew, son. <laughs> this is when uh, John Hewson asked for a glass of Armagnac rather than a, uh, a strong glass of beer. But there's an excellent poem about Paul Keating. My name is PJ Keating. 
I give you a terrible beating. This is Keating to Hewson. My name is PJ Keating. I'll give you a terrible beating. The lodge is mine. It's where I'll dine. So shut up and stop your bleating. This, uh, in contrast to a lot of the other poetry, is from the uh, sublime to the ridiculous, but it shows how he was trying desperately to link his poetic life and his uh, tax life. Um, He was given a, a weekly column in the Australian newspaper by Paul Kelly. He was an advisor to the federal government on capital gains tax. He wrote a textbook on tax law and he's a really important figure in that area and that, that's a very unusual thing uh, for a top poet. And then there's the poetry, poetry at school, poetry at university, writing to quadrant, getting together uh, original poets and others uh, at the university, getting up in year one and asking Any of you want to join an association for original thought amongst poets, composers? And he just got up and did that and all sorts of interesting people, including Les Murray, uh, came along and that was the beginning of a very long friendship with Les Murray that suffered an interruption when, as things happen, they denounced each other in different uh, passages but... uh, Les Murray chose a most unusual journal of record to denounce Geoffrey's Nero's poems, which was the Catholic Weekly. Uh, but uh, that led, I don't know it was, if it was Geoffrey's uh, Presbyterian um, uh, dislike of the Catholic Weekly or of what was said, but anyway, they, they fell out of love for a while, but I understand that that is now in the process of healing, as tends to happen as you get older. So, the features of Geoffrey's life that are here are he is a person of words and has always been, ever since his mother made up those stories beside the bed. Uh, and um, he is a person who understands the magic of words and um, he's very, very good at it. Uh, He has an excellent memory. Uh, His son Harry persuaded him to start the book with a memory that he penned which goes back to a time when he must have been only a little bit more than two years of age. And how, how how far can we go back to the first memories? Anyway, it was about the Japanese submarines in Sydney Harbour because don't forget he's on... McMahon's Point or the roundabout there um, and uh, that is very vividly recorded and so many things in his book are vividly recorded. Um, He had a family which was strange but not all that strange Uh, and um, he writes his book as a kind of prose novel with lots of images and detail that come from his skill with words and with his love of detail. He knows that out of the detail come the central ideas. He says uh, to me that he's glad that actually that he didn't keep diaries because if he'd kept diaries he would have had 
cluttered up with just too much information where he's had to strain his memory to actually remember his life and to record it, uh, and that's what this book does. But I said, well, why did you write the book? And he said, because Gail told me to. <laughs> but I said, that's not good enough. I want to know why you obeyed that command, because it's a labour, it's, it's, a, it's a hard work. And he said, I wrote the book in order to try and make sense of it all, which I suppose is what most autobiographies are trying to do. They're trying to look back before it's not possible to record things uh, and to try to make sense of it all. In the very last chapter of the book, which is called uh, Kararong, uh, um, he, he goes back to Kavafi's poem, Ithaca, uh, which speaks about Ithaca, the end of the voyage, being a poor place where Odysseus gets there. But Ithaca hasn't cheated you, Kavafi says, because it was a splendid journey and it was that that mattered. The excitement of dropping anchor in unknown harbours and escaping from man-eating giants and the ebony, amber and perfumes picked up at Phoenician trading stations. And so that was what Kadavafi said we should be doing in a book of this kind. And in the last chapter, Geoffrey explains that Kararong an old fishing village south of Sydney is at the heart of my Ithaca. In 1990, Gail and I were staying with Ian and Marilyn Fincham, who were friends of our family when I was young. We were staying with them at their beach house in Kurrarong. We'd just finished dinner. At 9pm, there was a knock on the door. Doreen, an estate agent who lived across the road, was standing there in a white nightdress. Notice all these little images that he's remembering. Not just she was standing there in a nightdress. It has to be a white nightdress. There's a house up the road on the beachfront, she told us. It's just come on the market. We walked up and stood on the road looking at the house. Before anyone could say anything, I said, I'll buy it. And I then turned to Ian with embarrassment and said, Ian, only if you don't want it. The house is on a sand dune and we grow sand-loving Australian plants that do not grow at Linfield. Flannel flowers and red and yellow kangaroo paws. Kararong is at the end of a long road through uninhabited bush, a naval firing range on one side and on the other side, beyond some trees and scrub, a long surf beach going on for miles deserted for most of the year. Kararong, in the local Aboriginal language, is place of many winds. And so his Ithaca is a place of many winds. And Leeward, as every sailor knows, is the place where you are protected from dangerous winds. It's that side of the vessel that is not going to be subjected to dangerous winds. 
So this is a book which has lots of quotations from Geoffrey's poems, uh, and I'm not really competent to go into them more than I have, but it's a book that explains the word master and Geoffrey, I'm going to be hovering outside Carreron and I'm going to be going up to the front door <laughs> and putting my hand on the front door in order to imbibe the spirit that you have shared with the people of Australia and have explained in this wonderful book. Michael, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Lehman. Thank you, Michael, for that wonderful uh, launch speech. I could not have imagined anything better than it. Uh, thanks, Tom, uh, for suggesting and hosting the book launch here. Uh, CIS and Greg Lindsay and Tom have been great friends to me for many years. I'd like to thank Philip and McGuinness, who can't be here for family reasons, who uh, agreed to publish this book, and Cathy Bale, who is here, my publisher, uh, both from the uh, University of New South Wales Press, or New South, as they now call themselves. They've been wonderfully supportive. I'd like to thank Fiona Smith, who I've not met, and she probably isn't here, but uh, she uh, was an absolutely brutal editor, and that's what you need uh, with the book. But I did want a brutal editor. I made it clear that I wanted a brutal editor, not, a, not an easygoing one. The following friends and family have helped by reading and critiquing earlier drafts, and there have been many drafts. My children, Harry, Lucy and Julia. My wife, Gail's sisters, Cecily and Deborah. My friends, Robert Gray, in particular for the structure of the book. Robert said that I had to finish with an image, which I did. Donald Kirby, uh, Ruth Burgess, Rex Burgess and Nick Horden, and my agent Fiona Inglis of Curtis Brown. She can't be here tonight, but Fiona told me that an earlier draft of the book was unpublishable, so that helped me a great deal <laughs> <laughs> with uh, revising it. Uh, uh, advice like that is very useful if you're, not, if, you, if you're an author, I think. August and Andrea Blackman asked me to contribute material to a family memoir about Charles Blackman, the great Charles Blackman, the great painter, and I've reused some of that material. I thank John Eldershaw, the son of my old teacher, Pat Eldershaw, who asked me, is there anyone here who's not absolutely certain there's a life after death? <laughs> anyway, John is his friend and is his son and he gave me permission to use extracts from memoirs of Pat who's dead for many years now and inspired my love for poetry. I thank Sally McInerney for permission to quote from her very fine poem Cattle Incident and Professor Margaret Harris for permission to quote from Christina Stead's Seven Poor Men of Sydney which refers to the proprietor of a boat whom I believe was my father going up the Lancove River about 80 years ago. I wish to thank my friend Piers Loverty for generously photographing the front cover and my flattering portrait on the back cover. I thank Peter Kingston for his generous permission to use his wonderful lino cut on the front cover. It really is a brilliant lino cut and I'm happy to say that I've actually got the original. 
Uh, this shows a small ferry, not unlike my father's small ferry, passing at night in front of the Opera House. But of course, the Opera House wasn't then there at the time of my father's ferry. This is a case where I hope you judge the book by its cover. Finally, <laughs> and most of all, I thank Gail Pearson, uh, my wife of 37 years and the dedicatee of Leewood and, of course, the person who told me to write the book. Uh, as I've said, that happened more than five years ago. Whether she has since regretted that decision, I don't know. I suspect that she may have sometimes. If you're foolish enough to start writing your memoirs, you are soon faced with a choice. What sort of a memoir will it be? The 84-year-old Janet Malcolm, a very sharp lady, has a recent article in The New Yorker which is by way of a brief memoir. She discusses certain photographs of herself when young and of family members. The photographs are reproduced with her article and she supplies some of their historical context then goes on to tell the reader she does not wish to make a, quote, recitation of my wounded child's grievances, close quote. Malcolm's prose, Janet Malcolm's prose, is elegantly elegiac, objectifying the past. The photographs are allowed to speak, but not the wounded child. This is a safe sort of memoir, one that the memoirist will not live to regret, where the past is an artefact selectively preserved and curated. There is a second type of memoir you can write, something messy, where everything hangs out you recite your wounded child's grievances and you argue with the ghosts of your parents and perhaps their parents. This is an unsafe sort of memoir and one you may live to regret. You may think you have a choice when you start between these two types of memoir, but in practice that choice may be made for you. I was born in 1940, an unexpected late child, my father was 48 and my mother was just two weeks short of 44. Until the age of 10, I grew up with my sister, who was four years older, in a house that was built in the 1850s. My mother gave it a name, the Skinny House. It was narrow and freestanding and four storeys high, if you include an attic and sandstone cobweb cellars, which my father had filled with old tools and building supplies. When we switched on the lights in these cellars, brown moths fluttered past as big, literally as big as small birds. They were huge. The skinny house stood on three quarters of a, an acre of waterfront in McMahon's Point. There were other houses on this land which my father owned, and he rented out rooms. Driftwood and coke, even the odd rock melon or dead cat, washed up on our beach. Tolstoy's Anna Karenina starts with a famous sentence. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Like many striking generalisations, this is strikingly untrue. The family I grew up in was happy, but it was quite unlike other happy families. <laughs> My parents had married late in life, neither had previously married, and they were faithful to each other, as far as I know. They took my sister and me on regular inexpensive expeditions to see movies and to the beach. They were frugal, and although there were quarrels, my parents stayed together. My father was brought up by a widow as one of five children. His father, who was a German carpenter, built the first Anglican mission station in New Guinea, caught malaria, 
and died the day after he got back to Sydney in 1891. My mother was also one of five children brought up by a widow. Her father was a medico, and at the age of ten one morning she went into her father's bedroom and found he was dead. He had died of a morphine overdose. This happened in 1906. Until the age of ten I slept in my parents' bedroom. I never saw them express spontaneous affection for each other. I think they were shaped by the events of their childhood, and in turn they shaped me. My father was working class and my mother was a nervous woman who just wanted to read books. So I had a strange childhood, although it was happy. When I started writing it, Leeward had to be the second type of memoir, an unsafe memoir, in which the wounded child recites his grievances. But, you will be relieved to know, my child escapes at the end, although it took years before I finally emerged from my childhood at about the age of 35. <laughs> I am an optimist. Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature shows that over time human lives are getting better. With each generation there is less violence and we live longer. For most of us our lives are more fulfilling than the lives of our parents and with luck our children's lives are likely to be better than ours. Now you might think I am selling you a brand of strange moonshine when I say this, and you may, may think that we are born in original sin, and Stephen Pinker's optimism is off with the pixies. But there is a simple reason why things get better. When life evolved, life forms that were conscious outcompeted life forms that were not. But consciousness is a double-edged sword from an evolutionary viewpoint. Conscious beings can choose between multiplying and not multiplying. The unhappy beings may suicide and not want to multiply. So we're hardwired to want humanness, to, to want happiness and improve our lives. And we have. Human beings are a wonderful species compared with the knuckle-walking ancestor we shared with the chimpanzees six million years ago. Chimpanzees are mean, devious and hierarchical and do not appear to have changed much over six million years. Chimps do not share treats when given the opportunity. <laughs> Kindergarten children tested in an identical setting did share treats spontaneously. We stopped walking on our knuckles, we stood up and began to use our hands and we became smarter and developed the ability to feel guilt. No other species does. They've actually carried out tests to show that no other species really does feel guilt. Dogs pretend to feel guilt but they don't really. <laughs> so we're a wonderful species although we feel guilt and that's one of the reasons why we are so wonderful because we feel genuine guilt. In Leeward I quote Miranda in Shakespeare's The Tempest she says how beauteous mankind is O brave new world that has such people in it. Thank you. <laughs>